Susan Moran. And I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, March 15th, 2016. Coming up, we'll discuss the latest research into the relationship between the mind and health with Joe Marchant, author of the new book called Cure, a journey into the science of mind over body. Basically, whatever you spend your time thinking about, whatever state of mind you're in all day, every day, that is shaping your brain. And if you are stressed and anxious all the time, every day, over time, that will shape your brain. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. We carry a personal mix of hundreds of bacterial species in and on our bodies, and we split them, break them, and leak them out. Someday, analyzing the molecular signature from these microbiomes might be used to implicate criminals. So far, the only crime it has helped solve occurred on the hit TV show CSI Miami. One problem is that the composition of the microbial communities change over time. The signature a murderer left at a crime scene a decade ago, for instance, may not exactly match his microbial cloud today. Smart criminals might pop up a few antibiotics before they strike. Researchers have sampled microbiomes from thousands of people and found that the abundance of microbial species are highly individual. Even identical twins harbor very different microbiomes. Both our genome and immune system determine the species mix. And in the first few years of life, we pick up a unique set of bacteria from the diversity we're exposed to. Even if they can't uniquely identify a person, the data could be used to build up a picture of an unknown suspect because the microbiome varies by gender, age, origin, and lifestyle. Scientists are proceeding cautiously with this technique because of the possibility of errors, but you can bet we will be hearing more applications of it. The research summary was published last week in the journal Science. In nature and society, everything from predatory animals to submarine-seeking ships has developed search strategies where a slow, localized search alternates with long, non-searching movements to explore vast areas where targets are sparse. When prey is abundant, a simple, random walking method is a better way to make connections. Researchers wondered if molecules would behave the same way. To examine the idea, researchers used single molecule tracking to directly observe the search process of DNA on surfaces decorated with complementary DNA and witnessed periods of slow motion punctuated by fast hops through an adjacent liquid phase. By measuring how long it took for each molecule to find its target, researchers determined that the tiny particles were indeed using the same intermittent flight foraging techniques as a shark hunting for prey, or a honeybee seeking nectar. This strategy allowed them to find their targets more than 10 times faster than they would have using a simple random walk search. Although this behavior had been proposed theoretically, the CU Boulder researchers made the first experimental observations of this phenomenon, providing a gateway for potential improvements in fields ranging from medical diagnostics to chemical production. In the medical field, for example, Detection tests for scores of diseases rely on biomarkers such as antibodies or mutated DNA reacting to probe molecules on surfaces to inform doctors of the presence or severity of a malady. The research conducted by Daniel Schwartz and John Monserrat, a PhD candidate in the Department of Chemical and Biological Engineering, 
was recently published in the journal Physical Review Letters. And on the science calendar this week, at the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder on April 1st, a new multimedia show illustrating the life and works of Johannes Kepler called eponymously The Kepler Show. The show features novel 3D video technology and cello performances by Zoe Keating. The show airs at 8 p.m. and there is a charge. Contact the Fisk Planetarium for details. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. You've probably heard of, and tried for that matter, acupuncture, homeopathy, or other forms of so-called alternative medical treatments. Maybe you've wondered whether it would be most effective to see a conventional Western doctor, say, for pain or compromised immune system, or see a naturopath or acupuncturist. There's a deep divide between the two camps, although it wasn't the case thousands of years ago. For instance, the Greek physician Hippocrates was truly the first holistic doctor. Today, this rift plays out in the realms of medical research and health insurance companies, for instance. Dr. Joe Marchant is a geneticist who's delved into the science and politics of the mind-body connection in her new book. It's called Cure, A Journey into the Science of Mind Over Body. Marchin explores the latest in the medical research into how the mind's power to help cure and damage our physical body, and how the placebo effect has measurable biological as well as physiological manifestations. I recently interviewed Dr. Marchin, and we played snippets of that interview during the Pledge Drive show last week. And thank you so much, those of you who pledged. Some of you received a copy of the book, in fact. Here's the extended conversation. What lured you to give this full book volume, this mind-body topic? I think it's just that this topic creates so much controversy and debate and raises so many strong feelings. So this idea that the mind can heal us, everyone has an opinion on it. You get these claims of miracle cures on one side, the idea that we can cure just about anything if we change our perspective and think positive thoughts. And then you have skeptics on the other side insisting that any idea that the mind plays a role in health is deluded. Um, So, you know, I'm a scientist, I have a a scientific background, I wanted to know what does the research really say, you know, what, what, if we take a more rational evidence-based approach rather than going to one extreme or the other, what, what does the science tell us about the role that the mind plays in health? Interesting, and this question about how the mind interacts with and reflects the body and vice versa, is not a new question per se, and certainly this dichotomy, the sense within Western and so-called non-traditional medicine, that dichotomy has been around for for quite some time. So what what new light are you and what you're finding shedding on this relationship between our minds and our bodies? I think we can see much more now what's happening inside the brain, particularly with new techniques in, in neuroscience. So brain scanning studies have been really important in the last few years in a range of fields, everything from placebo effects, where um, studies are showing that if you respond to a fake medicine, a placebo, that can trigger uh, measurable biological effects in the brain that are very similar to the effects caused by drugs. And that has been a big revolution in placebo research, showing that it's not just all in the mind when you respond to placebo, it's a real effect. Um, Right through to studies of meditation, mindfulness, where researchers are finding that training in mindfulness meditation creates physical changes in the structure of the brain. 
um, which are reversing the changes that are caused by chronic stress, for example. So I think that's one area where the new technology is really giving us an insight and allowing scientists to take this field much more seriously than perhaps they have done in the past. And let's jump into the placebo effect. It's fascinating. You give a lot of space, a lot of real estate in the book to that, starting with way back in, what was it, 1954, this Lancet article that stated that placebos offer, quote, comfort to unintelligent or inadequate patients. So what would that Lancet article and those researchers say today? Have we come along much since then? I hope so. Um, there are still real doubters and skeptics. You, you can read blog posts today saying that the placebo effect doesn't exist. It's just a myth. Or My, my favorite description is the beer goggles of medicine. Um, so it's this traditional idea that if you respond to a fake medicine, then that's an illusion, right? It can't be true. So it's either people who would have got better anyway, because a lot of people do get better with time, regardless of what medicine they receive, or maybe people just think they feel better when really nothing has physically changed. And those things can and do happen, but what the neuroscience is showing us is that there are these biological changes that are also occurring. So, for example, when people respond to a fake painkiller, um, there's a measurable release of endorphins in the brain. These are natural pain-relieving chemicals. And, in fact, they're the chemicals that opioid drugs like morphine and heroin are designed to mimic. They bind to the same receptors in the brain that endorphin does. Right. So if you respond to a placebo painkiller, you feel that you're in less pain. That's not something that you've imagined. You haven't just changed your perception of the pain. That, that is a biological change there, just as you would have experienced if you'd taken a, a real drug. Or in Parkinson's disease, for example, that condition is caused by a lack of dopamine in the brain. And when patients with Parkinson's disease respond to placebo, they get a release of dopamine, just as they would if they took the real drug. Even with altitude sickness, people can breathe fake oxygen, and you see a reduction in prostaglandins. These are chemicals that are responsible for many of the symptoms of altitude sickness. So there are many different mechanisms of placebo effects, um, but they are biological pathways, um, just, like the, just like the ones that, are, that drugs work through. You, you don't only experience placebo responses when you take a placebo. You experience them when you take a real drug as well. If you take a real painkiller, mm -hmm. you're going to benefit from both the active biochemical effect of that drug, but also from the placebo response, from all the psychological um, effects that that drug is having on you. And, and trials are showing that actually that can be very significant. In trials of painkillers, generally between one-third to two-thirds of the benefit that you get from that drug is not from the drug at all, but from your belief in that drug. So that points the way towards, um, hopefully, research where we can work out how to harness these effects, how to maximize these effects you know, that, that come alongside the real drugs we take. So you don't have to go around giving everyone tummy pills, just understanding the, the, the factors and the elements of care that trigger placebo responses. And they tend to be things... Um, like the words that doctors use when they tell us about pills, the appearance of the drugs that we take. Also, the social interaction with the doctor is really important as well. All these are elements in care that ease patient symptoms and in improve their responses to the drugs that we're taking. It's fascinating. And so if you say a third to two-thirds of the benefit of actual drugs comes from the placebo, the inactive yeah. part, are, yeah. are drug companies increasingly working this placebo effect, so to speak, into actual drugs? And if so, shouldn't they be cheaper? 
Most drug companies are very worried about the placebo effect, particularly because in trials of painkillers, for example, placebo responses seem to be getting stronger, and particularly in the, in the U.S. And drug companies are now finding it very difficult to get new painkillers through trials because the placebo responses are so strong. There was a study recently showing that... Um, in 2013, I think it was, the last year that they looked at in this trial, they were looking across a 30-year span, um, the, the patients in the placebo group got 93% as much pain relief as the ones that got the drugs being tested wow. on average. So you can see how strong these effects can be, and that may be because of drug advertising in the U.S. that's just increasing people's faith in drugs. It may be because trials are getting more expensive and longer, and that patients going into those trials are getting a better quality of care for longer. And, and one of the researchers said to me that this is perhaps pointing to the value of social interaction as a treatment for pain. Generally, the, the response that drug companies have to this is they're trying to identify placebo responses so they can keep them out of trials. They want to try and reduce the placebo responses that we're seeing in trials. But, of course, we also want to look at how can we maximize them and use them in medical care. Yeah, and how important is it, in terms of what these trials show, that a patient actually believes in the power of the healing? Well, our minds are complicated, and there are lots of different things going on here. So certainly conscious expectation and belief is important. Um, and there are studies looking at who responds to placebo, suggesting that feeling positive about your treatment, feeling engaged with your treatment, all of this stuff is important for how you will respond to that treatment. But on the other hand, there are studies suggesting, for example, that honest placebo, so you can take a fake drug, fake pill, know it's a, know it's a placebo, and still benefit. So there are studies now for migraine headaches, for hyperactivity disorder, for depression, um, and for irritable bowel syndrome, um, showing that honest placebos are significantly better than no treatment. So there's clearly something else going on. And that may just be that there's something about being cared for, being in a trial, receiving a treatment that is telling the brain something about, you know, whether you're safe and whether you're, you know, telling the brain that you're safe and that you're being treated. Even though you consciously know there's nothing in the pill, that's still having an effect on people's symptoms. For a lot of patients, if something makes them feel better, or if they see an improvement, they don't really care how it's working. They don't mind if it's an active effect of the drug or whether it's a psychological placebo effect. Who cares? They're feeling better. And I think that is a valid argument in many cases. Um, but with the um, honest placebos, where people know from the beginning that there's nothing in it, I think that's slightly different. And, and that is maybe saying that it's these beliefs um, and expectations can be sort of deeper, if you like, but just being cared for is important in itself. And there are also learned associations. These are like conditioned responses. I don't know if people will have heard of Pavlov's dogs. Oh, indeed. This goes way back to the 1890s or something, right? Yeah, yeah. So with Pavlov's dogs, um, the Russian physiologist, Ivan Pavlov, he trained them to associate being fed with uh, like a neutral psychological cue, like a, a sound of a buzzer or a light. And eventually they learned that association. So then even just hearing the buzzer, they would salivate even though there's no meat there, they, they, just, they would just automatically make the connection and, and do that in preparation for Right, being as we can do when you think of eating a lemon. Yes, <laughs> exactly. If you think enough about sucking down that lemon juice, you'll start to feel your salivary glands tingling. Right, and you give some examples of kids with ADHD. How, how does that um, work on them? Yeah, so, so these, 
this learned responses don't just work for salivation. They work for lots of different physiological responses. It's just a way that our brain feeds into our physiology and keeps the body prepared for what's likely to be coming next. And it works on immune responses, for example. There's really interesting research showing that we could use these learned associations to reduce drug doses in immune responses, uh, sorry, in autoimmune conditions, organ transplants, things like that. Hmm. But also in ADHD, they use exactly the same thing. They, they gave kids... Um, their real drug alongside this sort of distinctively coloured placebo, I think it was green. Um, and then once that association had been learned, they then alternated the drug with the placebo. So the, the kids are getting the half of their normal drug dose. And those kids did just as well as the kids on the full dose. Hmm. So that's just, and the, the kids knew and the parents knew that it was a placebo, but these learned associations, the beauty of that is it doesn't matter what you believe. If you, when you're thinking about a lemon, it doesn't matter if you know that you're not really going to bite into that lemon. It's an automatic thing that happens. So we can use these learned responses to, to teach our bodies how to respond to certain drugs, associate that with something else, a distinctive taste or smell or pill, and then we can use that, that psychological cue to trigger that response that we want without the drug. And that helps to reduce costs, but it also helps to reduce toxicity from the drugs, tolerance to the drugs, side effects of the drugs. Um, so I think that could be a really important area of research for medicine in the future. In case you've tuned in after the interview began, you're listening to KGNU Boulder, Denver at 88.5 FM, 1390 AM, and from anywhere, org. I'm Susan Moran, and we're listening to an interview I recently conducted with Dr. Joe Marchin about her new book, Cure, A Journey into the Science of Mind Over Body. We'll return to the interview now, starting with some recent research into how we can reroute our neural pathways with the power of the mind. I asked her to tease out the evidence-based studies from the, you know, woo-woo claims, like the mind can cure everything. Well, I think the idea that you can just magically cure things, like cancer, is there's no evidence for that mm. whatsoever. And also, there are, there are clear limits to what the mind can do. It's not going to be able to magic up a chemical that the body needs that it can't produce. You know, if you have diabetes, you can't suddenly produce insulin with your mind. If you have cystic fibrosis, you're not going to magic up that missing lung protein. If the body is overwhelmed by serious infection, injury, um, cancer, that the mind is not going to be able to overcome that. Um, but where the mind can play a big role, um, for example, is in the stress response. Because, you know, we know that feeling afraid, anxious, induces this fight-or-flight response, which has these wide-ranging physiological effects on the body, which are useful in an emergency, things like raised um, blood pressure, heart rate, um, blood gets diverted away from the gut towards the, the muscles in the brain, it, it triggers a branch of the immune system called inflammation. So all these things mm -hmm. are important for an, uh, an emergency, but they are very damaging when switched on long-term. And we also know that if you're chronically stressed over a long period of time, that's takes its toll on the brain. That starts to change the structure of the brain so that areas that are involved in your response to stress, like the amygdala, which is involved in um, sort of the, your emotional response to fear and threat, gets larger and better connected. And areas like the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex, which are involved in sort of uh, memory and emotion regulation and sort of rational thinking and planning, they get sm smaller and more poorly connected. So stress over time actually makes you more sensitive to stress if you see it. It's, just, it's, it's destroying the very brain pathways that you would need to be resilient to stress. And so what meditation seems to do is to reverse those changes. So 
neuroscientists see the amygdala getting smaller. They see the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex getting larger again. Um, and, and so it's, uh, and it may not be just meditation. Um, then the research is still at quite an early stage. It may be that other things like exercise might have a similar effect. But basically, what, whatever you spend your time thinking about, whatever state of mind you're in all day, every day, that is shaping your brain. And if you are stressed and anxious all the time, every day, over time, that will shape your brain. If you can use training in something like meditation to, to, sort of, to stop that and put your attention somewhere else, then that is going to reverse those changes. It makes a lot of sense intuitively as well. I'm curious, in the course of your reporting, and you went to many places far and wide, in extreme environments and such, anything that really shifted your own perspective? I think the placebo stuff, um, you know, meeting patients, because even when you read the research, you kind of think, yeah, but it's not really going to help, is it? You know, and then but then meeting patients um, with, um, you know, a lady who'd fractured her spine, for example, um, who'd received fake surgery, um, and that you know, wait, wait, define that pain. by fake surgery. How can you do fake surgery? I've heard of psychic surgery, like John of God <laughs> in Brazil, but what is, in this case, what's fake surgery? Um, well, some fake surgery just involves um, opening and closing the skin, you know, going through, in between going through the motions and not, but not actually doing anything. In this case, it was um, a technique called vertebroplasty, where people fracture their spine and then the surgeon injects a sort of medical-grade cement into the fractured bone to strengthen it, and it's going into the back. Um, so she received a short-acting local anesthetic, and then they uncapped the cement, let the smell waft around the room, and then went through this whole script exactly as if they were injecting the cement, but didn't actually inject the cement. So she believed she had re- received that, that procedure, but she didn't. Um, and that completely, the pain just went for her, and she was part of a trial um, where overall, this was an incredibly promising surgical technique, and yet the two groups, there was, there was no difference between them. Are you hopeful or pessimistic or perhaps somewhere in between regarding the future of medicine, particularly whether you think positive change is actually afoot towards this blending of so-called conventional and so-called non-traditional alternative medicine and, and funding for it? Yeah, I don't know. It's going to be really difficult, um, partly because of just there's so much um, prejudice, I think, in the scientific community mm. against the idea of the mind's effects on the body. It's seen as this magical, mysterious, woo, unscientific thing. And I don't think it, it should be. It's just a matter of biology. Of course, the mind affects the body. That's been important to our survival for millions of years. Um, so there's that. There's also some of what I was talking about relating to trial design, where the trials that we base our medicine on are completely focused towards showing the efficacy of physical drugs and treatments and not other elements of care. And yes, then there's funding. So three quarters of, of tr- clinical trials in the U.S. are funded by drug companies. And you know you wouldn't expect them to be necessarily championing mind-body therapies. Um, so um, I, think, I think we do need change in all of those areas. But then on the other hand, I think some of these new techniques that we've talked about, for example, in neuroscience, um, are making a difference because they're allowing us to see these measurable biological changes that are occurring. So when somebody has a belief or an expectation or an emotion, we can see the physical changes. And that, I think, is helping um, scientists and policymakers to take this field much, much more seriously. So, yeah, overall, I would say I, I am optimistic that we will see some big changes here in the next few years. 
That was Dr. Joe Marchant, a geneticist and a science writer whose new book is called Cure, A Journey into the Science of Mind Over Body. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Touré Rachel Collective. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Susan Moran.